0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moats, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are pressing on in our new series on the Gospel of John. Here, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers will discuss issues around the healing of the official's son in chapter 4. Along the way, they'll keep up their ongoing discussion about signs in John's gospel, as well as what faith looks like in this passage. We want to thank you for listening, and we do hope that you are sharpened and encouraged by this episode. And here are Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing the healing of the official's son in John chapter 4.
1: Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and with Jeff Myers. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of John, which we started several weeks ago. Our intention is to spend the next couple of months up until the beginning of Advent, looking at the passages in the first part of John's Gospel uh, that are seen as the Book of Signs. There are two events that are labeled as signs. We looked at one in a previous episode, the, uh, the first sign, the beginning of signs, as John says where Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding feast. Uh, The only other one that's actually labeled as a sign is the one we'll be looking at today, which is at the end of John 4, uh, where Jesus heals the uh, son of a royal official. Those two are designated as signs, but then uh, commentators frequently have seen Jesus' other miracles in the course of the first half of John's Gospels as another collection of signs, and often see that really stretching out over the whole gospel. So you have a series of seven signs in the first half of the gospel, and then an eighth sign on the eighth day, the resurrection of Jesus, which completes that cycle. So we looked at some of those general patterns in the past, but we're going to focus today on the end of chapter four. Uh, And this is a, a pretty brief episode. We don't know yet if it'll be a brief podcast episode because of that. Sometimes it's the things that look least promising that end up bringing the most to the surface as we begin to discuss them. Uh, but we want to look at this brief episode, and uh, no doubt we'll bring other parts of John's gospel into it. Uh, this is, uh, uh, let me just set this up and get your the other two of you, Alistair and Jeff, by noting a couple of things about the passage. Uh, this seems to be uh, a bracket along with the first sign, around the uh, chapters 2 to 4. That seems to form a unit in John's gospel. Perhaps it's a unit where you have an incident at Cana in Galilee, which is the turning of water into wine, and then another incident at Cana in Galilee. Uh, John 4, 46 tells us that he meets this royal official in Cana of Galilee. That's the same place where he turned water to wine. So you have that bracket, perhaps, around chapters two to four. You might also see this as some kind of sequence, uh, and you're kind of resetting the sequence by going back to Cana of Galilee, because in chapter two, you had Jesus in Cana of Galilee. Then the next scene, he's in Jerusalem, for a feast, and that's the cleansing of the temple seen in John's gospel, early in John's gospel. So you have this movement from Cana of Galilee into Jerusalem, uh, and you have the same movement if you look past the end of chapter four into the beginning of chapter five. You have a, again a movement from Cana of Galilee, where he uh, heals the son of the the royal official, from that into the the next sign, which is the healing of the man who's lame, and that takes place in Jerusalem. So he's up in Jerusalem again for a feast. So chapter 2 moves from Cana to Jerusalem. If you go from 4 to 5, you move from Cana to Jerusalem. So perhaps we're to see these as kind of a reset of a cycle. We're going to begin to move in in somewhat parallel to the previous chapters. The other thing I think structurally that we can notice seems to be a movement from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem, Jesus begins to journey back to Galilee Uh, If you watch the geographic movement of these chapters, he's in Jerusalem when he cleanses the temple. He's in Jerusalem when he meets with Nicodemus in chapter 3. He's in Samaria and he meets a Samaritan woman in chapter 4. So you're now moving out of Judea and out of the capital city of Jerusalem. You're moving into Samaria and he encounters another ethnic group and he offers living water to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And then he's up in Galilee and he meets a royal official who perhaps were to take as a Gentile. So that there does seem to be a radiating movement from Jerusalem to Samaria to Galilee, from a Jews to Samaritans to perhaps to Gentiles. That might be the sequence that we're looking at in these chapters.
2: There are some details of this particular sign that recall the earlier sign with the wedding of Cana and the water turned to wine. We've seen the location that this is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. It's again in the context of Cana. But there are other details here that might remind us of of that, that there's a request made by someone that's originally put off by Christ, that Christ seems to turn down the request. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And just as in the case of his mother, the royal official presses him and expresses a greater faith that um when jesus says go your way your son will live there is also maybe a reminder of the way in which jesus does things from a distance he doesn't directly interact with the water that's turned into wine rather he gives instructions and then following those instructions there's this conversation between the master of the feast and the bridegroom that's questioning about where exactly the wine came from a significant conversation, and here I think you have another significant conversation that's inquiring about the time at which the sun started to get better, and the focus upon the seventh hour in that context, and then followed by this expression of a greater belief that arises from the sign that confirmed the original faith. And so maybe reading those two things in parallel with each other, further things will emerge.
1: Another thing that parallel is the, uh, the presence and the, the role of slaves. Uh, it's the slaves that know where the wine came from. It's the servants whom Jesus instructs. And it's the slaves who meet the official on his way to his home and bring a message. So that would be another, another uh, detail that uh, links the two passages together.
3: Yeah, and a couple more. It seems that Jesus arrives in Cana in both instances on the third day. And after each healing, he goes back to Jerusalem to the temple. Both of these first two signs occur far away from the temple. I wonder what you guys do with the paragraph immediately preceding this in 43 and 44. After the two days, he departed for Galilee, and for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. That's an odd, almost contradictory statement because we all know that Jesus came from Galilee. So what is being said here is this um, is the hometown there that does not honor the prophet. Is that actually Jerusalem? Because it seems like when he comes to Canaan, he is respected. He's honored. What do you guys think of that?
2: Well, it seems to be an allusion back to um, Luke chapter 4 and the sermon in Nazareth. Um, It's interesting. You don't have that recorded within John's Gospel. But again, as you find in various other occasions within John's Gospel, there is the seeming assumption on the part of the author um, that John thinks his readers will have read one of the other Gospels, that they're familiar with this account where Jesus speaks to the synagogue and compares himself to Elijah and Elisha, who healed or um, worked miracles for foreigners, but did not work miracles for their own people. And so there is a welcome given in that context, but it's a welcome that is a conditional welcome on conditions that aren't conditions that Christ submits to.
1: Well, I wonder if part of the issue is how we're translating that word, in, yes. At the end of 44, you said you have hometown. My heaven, my NASB is his own country. If I'm remembering rightly, it's it's fatherland or... Yes. Yeah. Um, it is Patras. Patras, right. The context suggests that what he's leaving behind is Jerusalem because he's going from Jerusalem up into Galilee. And as you say, it'd be odd if his if Galilee is considered his hometown because he's welcome there. And I, I think the Patras, I wonder if it uh, were to read that in the light of what Jesus says during the episode of the cleansing of the temple, back in uh, 2.16, uh, to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's opposition to Jesus in Jerusalem because of that demonstration. Nicodemus uh, traditionally understood to be meeting with Jesus at night. Well, he, he says that because he's concerned about the Jews. So there's a, you know, the father's house or the father's country could be the, the country of, his, of the temple the place yeah. where the temple is, and he's been rejected from his own father's house, and so he's going out to the margins, out to Galilee.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's what I think it is, um, because when he leaves, just like when he left Canaan to go to Jerusalem, he had to cleanse uh, the temple his father's house. When he leaves after the healing the official son, he goes to the sheep pool uh, and back to Jerusalem, and there immediately encounters antagonism because he healed on the Sabbath. So that seems to be what's going on.
1: Right. Yeah, and, and the, uh, not all the conflicts, but many of the conflicts that Jesus engages in in John's gospel take place in, in and around Jerusalem. He's, it's a Jerusalem-centered gospel in contrast to the synoptics. Jesus is there a good bit of the time, not just in the last part of the gospel as in the synoptics. Uh, you know, in, in the synoptics, you would think Jesus went to Jerusalem only after, at the time of the uh, triumphal entry, and only in the last week of his life John shows us go- him going repeatedly to Jerusalem and he's constantly getting into conflict with the with the Jewish leaders there so that does seem to be the place where his uh, the opposition is occurring rather than Luke is showing opposition in galilee in his in his town of origin, but John is bringing out another uh, another another source of opposition. The term for uh, royal official I wanted to get your thoughts on this is uh Basilikos, basileus, basileia, that whole root word group in Greek has to do with kingdom, with king. And uh, here we have a basilikos, which is kind of an, it's an adjectival form. You can have a basilikos region, you can have a basilikos, it can, a royal anything. There's no noun that it's modifying here. So it's a royal one. Is really what the term uh, means. It's a royal personage. Not clear what his status is. The the his placement suggests that he's not a king, <laughs> because he's uh, uh, in Cana of Galilee. He's uh, he lives in Capernaum, uh, so there, he seems to in the, be in the borderland. But he's somehow re- uh, connected with royalty. That that raises that that issue of kingdom, which I don't think has it becomes important. Nicodemus raised it. Uh, about entering the kingdom. Uh, That discussion took place. Jesus raises it as his trial. Uh, But there's some play with royalty, and royalty coming to Jesus for salvation and healing. If this is a Gentile especially, then you have kind of a a small-scale pilgrimage of the nation, the Gentiles coming to seek the salvation of the Lord.
2: His connection, presumably with maybe a Herodian connection or something, would have Provoked negative connotations, I think, in the minds of most readers of John. Um, it would not have; he would not have been this figure that you would have naturally had an affinity with or an affection for. Maybe someone like um, Zacchaeus, tax collector, um, this royal official, has dubious connections.
1: Right, right. So, and again, it's uh, part of that. Uh, that would link it up with the previous uh, section of chapter 4, where Jesus is engaging with a Samaritan woman, again, offering the water that leads to eternal life to a Samaritan woman, where he raises questions even in the minds of his disciples, that he should be talking alone with the Samaritan woman. Uh, Alistair, in the previous episode, talked about the, the arrangement of the signs in John's Gospel and uh, suggesting that you have a kind of panel construction the way that you do in uh, in the creation week, if the if the seven signs are intended to be mimicking or following in some way the seven days of creation, then it seems uh, plausible to think that there may be a, a connection between the between the structure of the seven signs and the structure of the days of creation. There are multiple structures going on in the days of creation, but one of them is the the two panel thing with uh, the first three days matching up with the second three days, and that does seem to fit here. Um, Alistair pointed out, um, I think it was in the previous episode that we talked about, John, you have the first sign, which is the water to wine. That matches with the fourth sign, which is a miracle of bread, uh, feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6. So you have those two match up. This is the second sign, and it's the deliverance of a son uh, who's at the point of death, sick unto death, and he then lives. Uh, and then that would be connected with the fifth sign, which would be, also in chapter 6, uh, after, after Jesus has uh, fed the 5,000, then he walks on the water. There's kind of an exodus motif. And you seem to have a, a, a progression with the raising of the sun uh, as, a, as a Passover motif uh, and, the, and the crossing of the water in chapter 6 as, a, uh, as an exodus motif. So those, those seem to be working, working pretty well. Is that, was that the connection you made previously, Alistair? I don't remember.
2: The connection with Capernaum is one I made, oh. but yes, the other, the other two um, sets fit very neatly together. Um, this would be the weaker of all the connections, but I think there are still connections that we can see.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we're thinking thinking in Passover terms, then I think the that does put a layer, gives us a layer of significance to this episode. And you know, one of the questions. That rises here is why is this highlighted as one of Jesus' signs. In terms of the synoptics, this is a pretty standard operating procedure. Jesus does a lot of this kind of thing. Um, it's not the most dramatic healing. Uh, it's not the most demonstrative healing, but it would link up. Uh, it w- the the significance that is given in John's gospel might uh, make it would make more sense if we have kind of a Passover theme here. A son who's threatened with death and then by the word of Jesus is uh, delivered from death. And then you get, I mean, you have that uh, strong emphasis on resurrection. Verse 47, he was on the point of death. Uh, Verse 49, sir, come down before my child dies. So death and dying. And then Jesus says, your son lives. The royal official starts going home and his slaves meet him. Verse 51 says, they told him he was living. And then, verse fifty-three, his father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, "Your son lives," and he himself believes. So there is this sharp transition just in the in the use of language, from an emphasis on dying, uh, not just sickness but sickness to the point of death. He's on the he's on the verge of the grave, and then there is this emphatic announcement that the boy lives at the end. And again, you have a kind of Passover uh, deliverance from death to life, um, which you know. We could think ahead to the final Passover in John's Gospel, which is Jesus the Son who uh, goes to death and then uh, is raised uh, so again that would that that whole Passover motif kind of raises the profile of this episode and makes it a preview a, a foreshadowing of the final Passover that takes place in the death and resurrection of Jesus
2: do you have any thoughts on what seems to be a more general feature of Jesus' signs within the Gospel of John, where we might expect, if we read this is a book of signs, we might expect some pyrotechnics, we might expect some very dramatic actions that Jesus does. But yet, it seems in almost every single one of the signs um, that Jesus instructs people to do things. And the miracle happens almost... um, without anyone seeing the miracle directly take place. Rather, it takes place as people follow Christ's instructions, whether that's the process of drawing the water out of the water pots or whether it's the process of going back to the house and then finding out when the son was healed or when it's um, the process of giving out, the process of rising up and walking when he doesn't even know who it is who said that to him. And there's a lot of questions about who is the identity of the person who said this or the disciples giving out the food and the feeding of the 5,000 can think of the, the blind man going to the pool and washing or Lazarus opening the tomb and all these other things. In each case, we would expect something a lot more direct than we get, but yet it seems to be this recurring theme. And I wondered if either of you had any thoughts upon that.
3: Well, I believe this is one of the ways in which the prologue is um, carried out in the story of Jesus. I mean, a lot of people wonder when you begin with the word, the logos and the importance of the word, what happens to that then in the rest of the book. And these signs, you know, as we've said before, not just acts of almighty God, acts of power, but they reveal something about the glory of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and they also encourage us to believe his word. So as you noted, Alistair, there's so often it's Jesus' word that then is obeyed or followed uh, by whomever that ends up uh, delivering the goods. So it also fits then with the way John ends his gospel in chapter 20, uh, believing uh, in the word of the, the apostles. No one's going to be able to put their hands in Jesus' side or touch his nail marks like Thomas was. Blessed are those who will not see, but yet upon hearing believe. Um, so I think that, I think some of this has to do with just the importance of Jesus as the word and Jesus' word.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, that's really clear in the text that we're looking at here at the end of John 4, because John has used the word sign in chapter 2, talking about the turning of water to wine. Uh, but then verse 48 of chapter 4, Jesus, uh, his first response to the request uh, is, uh, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So apparently he's been doing more signs and wonders, and they're looking for the pyrotechnics that Alistair mentioned. Uh, and that, uh, that's, going to be the, that's going to be the source of their belief. But then two verses later, verse 50, when Jesus does respond to the official, go your way, your son lives, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. So you right. have this contrast between signs and wonders as source of belief and the response to the word. Same thing happens in verse uh, 53, rather. Uh, I read this before, but when, the, when he figures out the timing of when his son got healed, he realizes it was at the hour in which Jesus said, your son lives. So it's, again, it's the speaking of Jesus that's the key.
3: And the same thing happened with the Samaritan woman who goes back and tells her village everything. And in verse 39 of chapter 4, it says, they, they believed in him because of the woman's testimony, the woman's witness.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Alistair's comment, I think, was really insightful. Um, the other thing that it suggests is that he was pointing out that a lot of the events the actual miraculous event takes place in the absence of Jesus. He's not there when the thing happens. You don't see a bolt of power come from his fingers, but he's he's not even around. He, you know the uh, the water turns to wine sometime while in the process between the servants being sent and the servants coming back. The son the son is healed at the man's home in Capernaum, not where Jesus is. The blind man has uh, he he's uh, begins to see again when he washes his eyes and he comes back he doesn't he can't find Jesus Jesus is gone by then i'm thinking that also stretches ahead in the gospel to the upper room discourse where the absence of Jesus is so important to his instructions to the disciples you're going to do greater things than i am because the helper is going to come i'm going to leave uh, when i leave then you're going to suffer the same things i do so there's a strong emphasis on the continuing faithfulness of the disciples and the continuing of Jesus ministry through the disciples in Jesus' absence. And it's like John is setting up in the gospel story itself to show that Jesus is operating in his absence already. <laughs> Even when he's present, there's a sense in which he's operating in the in his absence.
2: And the instructions that he gives are really simple things and almost offensively simple in the way you might think of um, Naaman's response to the instruction of Elisha that if you're wanting a miracle, if you're wanting this great wonder to be performed, um, would you just draw some water from a water pitcher or would you, um, oh, from a water pot or would you just go home? Isn't there some sort of more special thing that you can do? How about just handing out bread and fish or the process of opening up a tomb? All of these sorts of things you would expect to something more dramatic that Christ asks of his, um, the people who are asking for the sign. But yet, it's in following those very simple instructions, um, offensively simple, um, sort of simplicity that might provide a stumbling block for people who are driven by a sign faith. Um, it's in obeying those that the wonder is actually performed.
1: Yeah, so in, in, the, in this episode with the official, the instructions are, go home. <laughs> Nothing simpler than that. Just go home, uh, and of course the, the key is the response of faith. He believes what Jesus said. Uh, he trusts that Jesus is capable of doing what he says. He, you know that the son that his son will live. He goes home expecting to find out that his son is alive because he believes the word of Jesus. It would be making make an interesting study to see what the acts of faith are in John's gospel. Um, you know, what the acts of faith are. Go home go fetch some water from the jars, (laughs) Uh, go wash your eyes out, pick up your palate and walk. Those are are the acts of faith. I think that's, uh, you're right, those are very simple, very simple responses, but they're powerful because they're responses, believing responses to the word of Jesus.
3: Do y'all have any thoughts on why uh, John calls attention to the seventh hour in verse 52?
2: I think... Uh, number seven we've already seen is an important one for John. Um, you have the seven day pattern already playing out in the first and second chapters. You have the seven signs. And here I think the seventh hour, the hour theme is pervades the gospel. The question of has Christ's hour come yet? Mm -hmm. something that's an issue within the context of the first sign. In the conversation with the woman of Samaria, there's a similar thing, uh, the question about the hour that is coming. And later on in chapter 5, the hour that is coming and now is, um, and what the Son of Man will do there. And then finally when his hour comes within the later chapters as his crucifixion looms, um, all of that, I think, helps us to understand a bit of what's going on here the seventh hour is that final completing hour, the hour at which the old creation will be brought to its its height Maybe you can maybe think about the one who the man who is coming earlier on in the chapter where there are six men mentioned the five husbands that have already existed, the one who now is who is not the husband and then the man who is coming the Messiah. Christ is the seventh man, and there's a sort of one of those type scenes of the woman met at the well, connecting with the patriarch narratives of meeting their wives at wells. So you have the seventh man, and now you have the seventh hour. Um, I know, I wonder whether we're supposed to connect those details.
1: Yeah, I wonder too, if we've got a, got a sequence going that stretches over a longer set, a, a section of John. Um, I'm looking at the uses of hour prior to this, and they, I can't see a pattern at the moment. But it's, it's notable that uh, in chapter 4, Jesus comes to Jacob's well, being weary by his journey, and the woman is sitting there by the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's 4-6. And then the, man, the son is healed in the seventh hour. And I wonder, there's a couple of earlier references to hour, but I think the, the main one is in, well, there's a tenth hour at the end of chapter 1, Jesus goes and stays with uh, Nathaniel, right? Uh, that mentions the 10th hour. Jesus says, My hour is not yet come, the hour that uh, Alistair was referring to. But I wonder if you have some. There definitely seems, seems to be a sequence from the woman at the well to the healing of the son, from the sixth hour when she encounters Jesus to the seventh hour when the son is healed. And I wonder if that's stretching out over a longer stretch of, uh, of the gospel. I wonder without conclusive, (laughs) without conclusive. It certainly
2: seems to connect with the woman at the well narrative. You have maybe the coming hour is mentioned within that narrative that follows. So you have the sixth hour and then the coming hour, you have the six men and then the coming man. Um, And maybe this is expressing, first of all, the coming man and Mm. the coming hour. Yeah. It may, it
3: may also connect with the next, a healing episode in verse in chapter five, where uh, Jesus heals on the seventh day. Hours not mentioned. Seven is not mentioned, but it is the Sabbath, and he gets in trouble for doing it on the Sabbath. That's certainly possible too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, setting up for that Sabbath theme. There's yeah you know, conflict. Several conflicts over the Sabbath as you go through those uh, later signs. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to highlight before we uh, close down, and that is, I think the We're looking at the book of signs in John's gospel. John uses that language pretty frequently, even when he's not necessarily identifying events as signs. Uh, But it's interesting that there's, in addition to saying, Jesus is manifesting his glory through the beginning of signs. uh, This is the second sign that Jesus performed after he came out of Judea into Galilee. That's how this, this episode in chapter four ends. And yet in the middle of the story, you have this polemic against trusting in signs and wonders in verse 48. We've already mentioned that. And this contrast between responding to signs and wonders and responding in obedient faith to the word of Jesus. Uh, so it's it's uh, I note this just as a, a kind of a, a ironic twist on what John is doing with signs. While using that language to describe what Jesus is doing and how he's showing the glory of uh, the Father, uh, there's also this... Uh, underneath that there's this polemic against signs and the warning not to trust in signs. Uh, I think this is going to come up again in, in chapter 6 when Jesus again rebukes people because uh, they come out, they want, uh, they want food. 626, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me uh, not because you saw signs but because you ate of the loaves. So there it's uh, the signs are uh, something they should have responded to. The loaves are satisfying their hunger is a false basis for following Jesus. Don't have a scheme to put this co- together coherently, but I think to get a full sense of what John is telling us about the signs that Jesus does, we have to recognize that there's both a uh, there is a manifestation, and yet there's this polemic that's alongside and underneath, inter- intermixed with it at the same time.
2: When we look at each of the signs, one feature of them that really sticks out to me is the number of them that actually pay attention to numbers. So you have the 38 years of the man at the sheep pool, you have the um, 12 baskets with fragments that are gathered up of the feeding of the 5,000, again another significant number, you have the three or four miles in association with the walking on water, you have the seventh hour, you have the um, six water pots, you have the um, number of days in the story of Lazarus, you have the 153 fish in the sign-like event in chapter 21. And each one of those, I think, push us to meditate upon the meaning of what's taken place, not just to think about this was an amazing um, spectacle that occurred, but there's something significant about this number. And just as we're doing now, that we're reflecting upon why that particular number seven is given or why are these... Particular number of days highlighted that this happens on presumably the third day. It would seem that John, even in the details that he includes, he invites you to approach the signs as a different sort of thing than we might otherwise be inclined to. We might just think of this as a spectacle or a wonder, but by including those numbers and those significant details, he pushes us into a different way of considering them.
3: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And the other Aspect of these signs that we should at some point consider. Well, we have already with John uh, 2 and the water pots, but uh, what is actually done? Why why does Jesus heal someone's son who is ill with a fever? And then the next healing at the pool, uh, there's a vast multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And Jesus picks out one man. And heals him. And that becomes then a, a particular kind of sign. Um, so these, at some point, you know, people who read this, in the modern people who read this, wonder well, what am I supposed to take from this? Um, is Jesus going to provide me with wine? Is Jesus going to heal my son? Is Jesus going to miraculously cure? Uh, whatever ailment my husband has or or whatever. And we need to deal with the, with the pastoral implications of this. What does this actually mean for us? Is this all spiritual? Is some of it physical? You know, I'm asking a lot of questions here, but it, at some point that
2: has to be dealt with as well.
1: And at some point, Jeff... We will.
2: <laughs> there is an element, I think, of what we've already discussed that Jesus is expressing the blessedness of those who have not seen and yet have believed. Yeah. That the royal official doesn't see anything, but yet the signs are often um signs given to a faith that does not see, but nonetheless believes.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.